You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Mark 5, 1 through 20 this evening. And obviously, we're getting back into our study of the Gospel of Mark uh, for the next few months. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the account of the Lord Jesus casting out a host of demons from a possessed man. Now, this passage, if you've read it before, and I know a lot of us have, this passage is just interesting, right? But by itself, it's just an interesting text. If I gave you no introduction, we could just jump right in, and the text itself would probably grab you. It just grabs your attention. Uh, to, to my knowledge, this is the most extensive account of demon possession in all of Scripture, uh, and, and it certainly is the most extreme account of demonic possession in the Bible. Um, in this passage, you're going to see a man possessed with thousands of demons. And you're going to see him encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you're going to see Jesus in his great mercy and his great grace by his sovereign authority as God free this man from demonic dominion. Um, now when we read this account, if you're familiar with it, but what we tend to do is we tend to focus on how Jesus restored this possessed man to his right mind and how the man then loved Jesus and wanted to be with him and then went out and told people about Jesus. And that's totally valid. I'm not knocking that at all. That's actually going to be our focus on this same text next week. Um, but what grabbed my attention in my studying this week is Jesus' authority and power over demons. And how the demons, this really grabbed me, how the demons were terrified of him. Uh, I counted at least five, I think, different references or implicate or being implied in the text that the demons were terrified of Jesus. Because you see, this passage really speaks to the lordship of Christ and his lordship over everything, including demons. Not to say that Jesus has any part with demons, but he is lord over the demons. He is lord of demons. He is the master and king of everything. Now, this text certainly speaks to the character of Christ and his compassion uh, on those who are bound in sin and bound to Satan. And like we said, I guess, like I said, not we, I'm not plural up here. Like I said, uh, we're going to look at that next week. But it's the truth of who Jesus is that gives the ability for him to cast these demons out. It's because he is God that he can do these things. Right? And remember, as we read the Gospel of Mark, one of the big themes that Mark wants to teach us is who Jesus is. As chapter 1, verse 1 says, he is the Son of God. So it, it might seem a little bit odd, but we're going to spend a good bit of our time together taking a look at Jesus' interaction with these demons more so than Jesus' interaction with the man who was possessed. All right? And our focus is going to be on Jesus' power, authority, sovereignty, and lordship over demons. And then we're going to see what that means for us. And I'm going to go ahead and give it away right now. Here's what this means for us. Namely, that we should fear him. You should fear Jesus. And there are two different ways that you should fear him, depending on whether or not you're a believer. But you should fear this Jesus that we're going to read about. So our outline for this evening. Um, first, we're going to look at the power of demons then we're going to look at the demonic response to the Lord Jesus. 
Third, we're going to see Jesus' power and authority over the demons. Fourth, we'll see the human response to the Lord Jesus. And then lastly, we'll get into some application, both for believers and unbelievers or false converts, if we have any among us. Um, now, please, this is something new. We've never done this before since I've been pastor here. As a sign of respect for our God, if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. If you're able. If you're not, that's okay. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you this evening and humbly ask you to teach us your word. By your Holy Spirit, please make us receptive to the word that was just read. Help us to take it seriously and to meditate on it, believe it, and walk in it by faith. Teach us more of who your Son is. Let us bask in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please convict us, encourage us, and point us to your Son and your glorious gospel. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we dive in, um, I, I think it's good for us to start by answering the question, what are demons, right? We're going to be talking about them a lot this evening, so it's good for us to have a biblical understanding of demons and not a Hollywood film understanding of demons. So, so here's the quick and dirty on demons, right? That's kind of a funny way to put it. Here's the lowdown, I guess, very quickly. Uh, first, we need to know that demons are spiritual beings. Uh, they have no physical body like us, uh, and that's why they can possess humans and animals. And I say animals because in Genesis 3, Satan possessed a serpent. Um, so they have no physical body. They're spirit beings, and they're, they're angels. They're fallen angels. They're evil angels. 
Uh, they're angels who sinned against God at some point between Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. At some time, in between those points in time, these angels sinned. And I say that because at the end of Genesis chapter 1, God looked at his creation and said, It is very good. Angels are created beings. They're not eternal like God. Everything that exists was created by God, including angels. So since his creation was good when he created it, but demons are evil, sinful angels, then their fall must have happened between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1, because in Genesis 3 we see the devil tempting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but for some sin that they committed, these angels were cast out of the immediate presence of God in heaven. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, we're told that some angels sinned. Uh, and for some more insight on that, I think Jude in Jude 6 gives us some insight into that sin. Jude speaks of, quote, angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, end quote. Uh, we, we can infer from this that the sin of these angels was some kind of pride. All right? They didn't want to stay within their own position. Right? They didn't want to accept the position that God had given them. They didn't want to stay in their lane and know their place. Right? So they rebelled against God. And so because of that sin, God kicked them out of heaven. He removed them from his immediate presence. And those angels that rebelled are now called demons. And they are hostile opponents to God. They hate him. Right? They do not worship him as they were originally created to do. Instead, they are opponents to God, God's word, God's people, and God's creation. They, they seek to destroy what they can in the world and wreak havoc on everything they can, including human beings. And they seek to make believers as ineffective as they can. Um, and I, I believe they do this because they know they can't strike out at God directly because of how well that went the first time. Uh, so they try to strike at him indirectly by hurting his creation. Demons tempt us to sin, though we can sin all by ourselves, and you shouldn't blame everything on the devil. You are a wretch, and you can sin by yourself. Uh, same, same. Uh, but they do tempt us to sin. They influence our world towards evil, and they try to cause us, I think, primarily to doubt the word of God. And honestly, they have more influence in the world than we are comfortable giving them credit for. I personally believe that great evils committed throughout history, whether they be international, national, or local, you know the evils I'm talking about, you see, how in the world could a human being do that? I think that those kinds of instances of evil are probably demonic in origin or at the minimum demonic in influence. Uh, another word about demons, they're powerful. They're more powerful than human beings, but their power is limited, right? This is stupid idea out there that there's like this eternal cosmic struggle between good and evil, God and the devil, and it's like equal opposing forces. That's dumb. These angels rebelled against God, and he removed them from heaven and cast them, uh, some of them, into the pit and promised the rest of them, you're all going to go to hell someday or the lake of fire someday, right? There's not this cosmic struggle, but they are powerful, right? But their power is limited, they're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. They're not everywhere, um, as, as God is everywhere. They are not omniscient. They don't know everything. But, as I said, they are powerful. They can travel from place to place, so sometimes they can give off a, a, a vibe like they've, they are omnipresent. They can communicate information to one another because they're, they're intelligent beings. They can speak, and they can observe the actions of human beings, and that's why sometimes... Uh, people who are possessed seem to 
be omniscient. They know things that they shouldn't. It's because demons can observe and tell each other information. But all that, all that said, these spiritual beings are not myths, right? They are real. God's inerrant word declares this to us, and we are fools if we think that they do not operate today in some way. There's a debate on how much um, they operate, but you're a fool, I think, if you, believe that, or if you don't believe that they're doing something. All right, so just a quick aside, please, as I've been tempted to do in, in my life as a Christian, don't try to take the supernatural out of our religion. Please don't do that. The Bible speaks to these unseen realities, and God himself tells us that they are real, so we are to believe what God has revealed in his word. But anyway, that's enough about demons for now. Uh, our text begins with Jesus getting off a boat in the country of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. There's a textual variant there. Um, and this passage is following on the heels of the end of chapter 4, when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, it's the same setting. It's picking up right where we left off in chapter 4. And you'll remember in chapter 4, after Jesus calmed the seas and shows that he's Lord over creation, his disciples then ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Right? And now, as Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat the following day, we're going to get an even greater insight into exactly who Jesus is. But verse 2 tells us that as Jesus gets to the shore, he steps out of the boat, and immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So Jesus steps out of the boat, and this man is headed toward him at what I believe is a very quick pace, and he is possessed by demons. Now let's consider together our first heading, the power of these demons over this possessed man. Let's read verses 3 through 5. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. In these three verses, so verse 2 introduces us to this man. Verses 3 through 5 give us information on this possessed man. And what we see here is that these demons have completely overtaken him. He has been, he, he, how he came to be possessed, we're not told by scripture, but we do know that he couldn't have been a believer because believers cannot be possessed by demons. Uh, since this is a Gentile region, heavily Gentile region, this man probably was a pagan. He worshiped false gods, uh, which the Bible says they're not worshiping gods, they're worshiping demons. Um, he, he's probably been involved in paganism and occultism of some form, which is like opening a floodgate to the demonic realm, so we shouldn't be surprised that a pagan would be possessed. In fact, if you watch videos of some of these pagans even today during their religious practices where they shake and writhe on the floor and act crazy, you could be led to conclude that many of these people might be possessed as they're practicing their false religion. But this man is no longer in control of his own body, right? Either at all times or most of the time, I'm not sure, but he's no longer in full control over his body. These demons have commandeered his body and are using it for their own purposes. When he moves, the demons are making him move. When he speaks, it's not really him speaking, but the demons who are using his vocal cords to speak. Matthew's parallel account, just to give you some more information about this man, Matthew's parallel account in Matthew chapter 8 tells us that this man was a terror to those around him. It says he was a fierce man, he was ferocious, and that people couldn't even get by him. Uh, they couldn't go to the tombs or through the tombs because he was there. He was so fierce. He most likely attacked all those who came near him. 
Luke, Luke tells us in his account in Luke chapter 8 that this man was completely naked. And he had been naked for some time, which some commentators think that this may have been a sign of sexual perversion of some kind. But simply put, these demons have overpowered this man. No mere human being is any match for them. As I said earlier, demons are much more powerful than human beings. And these demons are seeking to ruin this man. And apart from divine information, or information, divine intervention, they would have succeeded. They've driven him out among the tombs, which is an unclean place with no life in it. There are no people around him. They've taken his mind from him. They've taken his dignity from him. He's naked. They cause him to howl with this unearthly howl all day and all night. This demonic noise is coming out of him. And they cause him to cut himself with stones. He takes sharpened stones and gashes himself open with them. These demons are in control of this man. He cannot stop them. He has been given over to them, and they are destroying him. We'll get into this more next week, I'm sure. He cannot set himself free. He does not have the power to set himself free. And Mark makes it painfully clear that nobody else can help this man either. Right? Nobody in his village or town or whatever, in the Decapolis around him, no one can help him. No one else can overpower these demons. In verse 3, we read, no one could bind him. They've tried tying him up. Right? He's a terror to his village. Even with shackles and chains made of metal, they cannot get this man tied down. So powerful are these demons that they cause this man to have an inhuman supernatural strength to break apart his bonds and burst the chains that would hold him. This is terrifying. For real, like, this is where, you, like in the movies, you see like demons being able to do real crazy stuff with strength. That's where they get this idea from, is, is this account of this man. This is terrifying. That They can't lock this man up. So, so much more powerful are the demons that even the whole community with their combined strength cannot keep the demons from wreaking havoc on the village through this man. Verse 4 highlights this in a really heavy way. The end of verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. Mark's highlighting this for us. So powerful are the forces of Satan that nobody can stop this, these demons from destroying this man and doing as they please. Again, I know I've said it about six times now. Know this, no mere mortal is strong enough to stop these demons. That's what Mark is highlighting for us in verses 3 through 5. But on the other hand, what is the demonic response to Jesus? Our second heading, what is the the demonic response to Jesus? These demons that, that nobody could subdue, that nobody could overpower, that nobody could chain up, how do they respond to the presence of the Lord Jesus? In a word, fear. They respond to Jesus with fear. Verse 6 is our first clue. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now that's weird to me when I first was studying this. This is strange. This possessed man sees Jesus from afar, but instead of running away, he runs toward Jesus. I don't believe this man is regenerate. I don't believe he's a believer. Again, he's possessed. So why? Why would these demons cause this man to run toward the Son of God? Why would you do that? I have an idea. I have an idea as to why. It's an inference. It's a bit of a guess, to be honest, so take it or leave it. I'm open to being wrong, right? But I was thinking through this, and I think I might have an answer. Remember how I told you in Matthew 8, Matthew's account says that this possessed man was fierce. He was so fierce that people couldn't pass by him. He, he got violent with anyone who got close. Most likely he beat them, and he would send them on their way. 
That's one thing to remember. A second thing, as I said earlier, demons are not omniscient. They don't know everything. I don't think that the demons in this man from afar recognized who it was getting out of the boat. I don't think they, I don't think they did. So I think it's reasonable and funny <laughs> to think that these demons run toward Jesus thinking that he is a man just like all the other men that they've terrorized and beaten in the past. But when they get close enough to see who it really is, they fall face down in the dirt. They fell down before him. These demons that nobody could subdue, that no one could conquer, fall down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that because the man being controlled by demons, when he goes down, it's the demons in him bowing down to the Lord Jesus. And this bowing down or falling down is a posture of complete submission and total defeat. In some contexts, the, the Greek word here that we translate fell down can be used to refer to worship. But these demons don't worship the Lord Jesus. What they're doing is they're showing him the respect that he commands as God. They're terrified of him. This bowing down, this falling at Jesus' feet is nothing less than a demonic recognition that they are in the presence of someone greater than they are. Someone more powerful than they are. They were recognizing that they had more than met their match and that they are now in the presence of the one who rules over them. They fell down before Jesus because they knew who he was. They knew in that moment who they were dealing with. And we see that in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, the possessed man, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? These demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Now it's ironic, I just want to point this out in passing. That in Mark's gospel, nobody, nobody ever confesses the full identity of Jesus except for demons. Until you get to the end of Mark's gospel where a Roman centurion of all people declares that Jesus is the son of God. But demons always recognize Jesus when they're in his presence. And that's because they know their maker. They recognize the one who created them. They've known Jesus from the beginning. They recognize their God when they're near him. But a word about the most high God. For these demons to confess that there is a God who is most high is to say a lot. Right? This is a Gentile way of confessing the supremacy of the God of Israel. Like in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar refers to Daniel as a prophet of the most high or a servant of the most high God. This is a Gentile way of recognizing the supremacy of the God of Israel. It's a recognition of God's unlimited universal power and reign over everyone and everything in every place in the universe. It's a confession that there is no one above God, that he is transcendent and rules over all others. Again, the most high God. And to confess that Jesus is the son of the most high God is to acknowledge that he is of the same nature as God, that he has the divine nature in himself, that all that can be said of God the Father, his power, his transcendence, his universal authority, everything can be said of Jesus, his only begotten son. These demons know that Jesus is God. And recognizing who he is, the son of the most high God, they cry out, what do you have to do with us? This stuff just made me chuckle the more that I started to get into how scared these demons are of Jesus. They're trying to distance, what do you and I have to do with one another? Right? They're trying to distance themselves from Jesus. They want no part 
with him. They want to get away from him as fast as they can. They're afraid of him. Jesus Christ is the one who demons fear. They tremble in his presence. And they beg, don't they? They beg. When I was writing this down, I always write the passages out that I have to preach on. Because whenever you write stuff down, you have to take your time and go through word by word what it is that you're reading. They beg was the biggest thing that stuck out to me. In verse 7, they adjure Jesus by God, which other translations read, urge earnestly, I beg you, I implore you. In verse 10, explicitly in our translation, they beg Jesus to not send them out of the country. In verse 12, they beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. They beg. They beg the Son of God. These demons who are able to overpower every human being they've ever come in contact with are begging him. They're begging him, and they beg him because they know they've been overpowered. They beg because they know that they have no authority over him, but that he is the capital A authority over them. But they're begging in verse 7, I think, is what stuck out to me the most. They beg Jesus, do not torment me. Do not torment me. And I'm sure I'm saying this much more calmly than they did. <laughs> it says they cried out, do not torment me. Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 8, 29, uh, verse 29. Have you come to torment us before the time? Torment. The demons don't want Jesus to torment them, but what kind of torment are they talking about? I think it's fairly easy to see that they're talking about being cast into the lake of fire. The demons have good theology, right? They have good eschatology. They know how the end shakes out, and they know that they lose, Right? They know where they're going. Demons are not current, or at least mm, the majority of demons are not currently in hell right now. They know that they're going there someday. And they don't want to go there, right? So this picture that you see of like demons with pitchforks, like torturing people in hell, that's stupid. That's completely unbiblical. They don't want to be in hell. That's why they say, please don't torment us, Jesus. They know that their eternal destiny is one of defeat and everlasting condemnation in flames. And they also know that it's the Lord Jesus who's going to send them there. As Jesus says in John chapter 5, my father doesn't judge. He's given all authority to judge to me. Jesus is the great judge that men and angels will stand before on the great final day of judgment. And he will cast the unbelieving wicked into hell. But there's something here that's simple but powerful that I don't want you to miss. And I might be illustrating something for no reason. But th this hit me really hard. These demons beg Jesus not to torment him. They don't want to be cast into hell. And they beg because they know that Jesus has the power, authority, and ability to do it. Right? Let me illustrate this for you. You don't beg a newborn baby not to kill you. Right? I've not done that in two and a half months. Right? Like, I, I have not done that. Why? Because the baby can't kill you. It doesn't have the power to do that. But you do... Beg a mugger with a gun to not kill you. Why? Because you know he can. You only beg people not to do something when you are fully convinced that they can. The demons recognize that Jesus is the sovereign judge who will cast the wicked and impenitent sinner into the lake of fire for eternity. And that is why they beg him. It's not a question. They know he can do it, so they beg him not to because they know someday he's certainly going to. The demonic response to the Lord Jesus Christ is one of submission, begging, and fear. They're terrified of him because he's not a mere man. 
They know that he's much more than that. They know that he is the almighty God in the flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the son of the most high God, and they tremble in his presence because they know who he is. Our third heading now. Let's consider Jesus' power and authority over the demons, which is very similar to the last point that I just made. I'm going to walk all over all this stuff and combine them together. First, it's good to note when we're considering his power and authority in this passage, note how many demons Jesus was going up against. In verse 9, Jesus asked the possessed, What is your name? Now, I, I want you to know that this is not because Jesus needs to know the name of the demon in order to cast it out. Some of you have watched too much Supernatural. Right? That's a pagan myth that's found its way into popular television and popular movies. He doesn't need to know the demon's name. Furthermore, the divine nature of Christ already knows the demon's name. Rather, Jesus asks for the demon's name in order to highlight how severe this case of possession was. Because the demon's answer is, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion is up to 5,600 Roman soldiers. Now, that doesn't mean that there were exactly 5,600 demons in the man, though that is possible. It's probably a figure of speech to say that there are thousands of demons in this man. Right? And this is also highlighted by the fact that a herd of 2,000 swine die that day when the demons are cast into the swine. And I highlight that to, to say this, to, to, to point out the power of Christ. It would be a miracle to see one demon cast out of anybody, wouldn't it? And we've already seen Jesus do that in Mark chapter 1. But this, to cast out thousands of demons, would take nothing less than divine power. This is a monumental task. But Jesus can do it. And Jesus does it in this narrative. He casts the demons out of the man. And he does it not through some kind of ritual, but by the word of his power. Right? This is a, a, a display of Jesus' omnipotence. Because his power as God is absolutely limitless. He's the one who spoke the world into existence, and he's the one who can, with a word, cast these thousands of demons out of this man. But I also want to point out something I found very, very powerful in verse 13. The demons have begged Jesus to cast them into the herd of pigs. And then we read this, very first line of verse 13. So he gave them permission. So he gave them permission. What authority that Jesus has over the demons. They beg him. They're on the ground before him. They're pleading with him not to be sent to hell. And they say, send us into the pigs instead. But they can't go of their own volition. They can't choose to do that by themselves. Before they can move, before they can do anything, they have to wait for Jesus to give his permission. This, brothers and sisters, is your king. Nothing can happen without his go-ahead. Nothing on earth or in the spiritual realm can happen without the Lord Jesus giving his consent to it. He is the sovereign ruler. That's what we mean when we say he is sovereign. He rules over all things, and nothing can happen unless he decrees it and allows it to be so. Had he not given permission, I'm fully, convinc I'm fully convinced that the demons would have either went to the lake of fire or they would have had to stay on the ground for all eternity. They could not move unless he gave them permission. Jesus is not an authority amongst many. He is the authority. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. As we confess each week, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord over you. He's Lord over me. 
He is Lord over angels. He's Lord over demons. He is Lord over the entire cosmos. He is Lord, and there is no challenger. He is Lord. And now we come to the human response to all of this. So to summarize this passage, Jesus has cast the demons out of the man. He's cast them into the herd of swine. The swine have thrown themselves into the sea and drowned. What, what he's done is Jesus has put himself on display in freeing the possessed man of, of these thousands of demons. Right? He's put himself on display as the divine son of God. Now, what you would think would happen, what you would think that the response of those who heard and saw would be is one of praise and thankfulness and worship of Jesus, right? That's not what the text says. Starting in verse 15, And they, the people of the region, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It's not what you think would happen. The people fear him and beg him to leave. They don't want him to be around them anymore. Now, there are different theories for why they responded this way. Some commentators think that since the herd of swine would have been very expensive and they've just suffered a huge blow to the local economy and 2,000 pigs dying, that they asked Jesus to leave now because they don't want him to hurt their economy anymore. Uh, and that might be part of it, to be fair, right? It, it may be that so much did these Gentiles love their money that they would rather have money than the Son of God. And that's something for us to think about. Do you want Christ or do you love money more? But I don't think that that gives us a full answer. I think there's something deeply theological behind their response. You see, in Scripture, we see a repeating theme. And here's what the theme is. When the holy God comes into contact with unholy sinners, the unholy want to flee from him. That's what we see all throughout Scripture. A couple of examples. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6. God appears to Isaiah, and what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. I am going to die. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I am unholy, and I have seen the King. I have seen the Holy One. I've seen Yahweh. I am done. We see this in Peter. When Peter gets a glimpse of who Jesus is in Luke chapter 5, and he cries out, Depart from me! For I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's Peter's response when he realizes who Jesus is. When sinners come into contact with the holy God, they fear. And rightfully so. God is so pure that the impure want to run from him. And we do this because we inherently know that God is holy. And that he hates sin. And that our sins are many. So we want to run from him. You see, the only thing more terrifying than a man possessed by a legion of demons is the God who can, by a command, by his permission, by his word and power, cast out those demons. The one being more terrifying than demons is the one whom the demons fear. And these people on that day would rather be surrounded by the demonic than be near the holy God. What a lesson in humanity's total depravity. 
not going down that road. But what should have led them to repentance and faith in Jesus, they now use as an excuse to run from him and say, get away from us. But they feared him. Like the demons, the people feared Jesus. And that brings us to our application. And there's something here for both the believer and unbeliever. And as I look around, I, I don't believe I see any visitors with us. So you may say, maybe this is unnecessary. Please hear me, false converts are a real thing. I'm not accusing any of you. But I will say this, Christ did not give us church discipline for no reason. I don't know if everyone in this room has been truly converted or not, so these things are necessary for us all to hear regularly. If you're here and you're a false convert where you're merely religious and you've not submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you just attend church and you do the religious stuff and you pass yourself off falsely as a Christian, I want you to listen. You ought to fear this Jesus that you've learned about this evening. I'm serious. And when I say fear, I mean that there ought to be a true element of terror that strikes at your soul when you consider the Son of God. He's not a chump. He's not a wimp like our culture likes to pretend that he is. He is the great judge of all the earth. He is an all-consuming fire. As the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands of judgment. If you're here and you're a false convert, if you're an unbeliever, when you think of this Jesus, you ought to be afraid. Please listen to me. Be very afraid. And why do I say this? Listen, at the end of the day, here's why I say this. At the end of the day, the unbeliever, the false convert, is no different than a demon with regard to their relationship to Jesus. If you're a false convert, you are outside of Christ. You are outside of his forgiveness. You are outside of his covenant. You are outside of his protection. You are not united to him by faith. You are apart from him. You are under his wrath in your current state. You ought to fear him with the same intensity that the demons did in this passage. And that is because your fate as of right now is the same as theirs. Eternal hellfire. You ought to fear his wrath. You ought to be afraid when you consider that he promises to send to eternal torment those who do not repent and turn to him in faith and submission to him as Lord and Savior. You ought to always be full of dread when you think of him. Every thought of Christ should fill you with fear as you consider the wrath of the Lamb that you stand under since you are not under his grace. But sinner, would you listen to me still? And Christian, hear me, because you need to hear this again. Christ has made a way for you to come out from under his wrath and condemnation. Oh, as severe as his wrath is, his mercy is greater. His mercy is greater. He, the judge, has stepped down from his judgment seat. And in place of all who will believe on him, has taken their punishment in their place. The Lord Jesus was crucified and suffered the righteous wrath of God that sinners deserve for their sins. As a substitute in place of sinners, he was punished as if he had committed your sins. Though he is perfectly righteous and innocent of any wrongdoing, he's paid the penalty that you deserve. 
And after dying the death that you deserve, God raised him from the dead to prove that his wrath had indeed been satisfied in Christ and that all who come to Jesus in faith will be forgiven their sins and saved from the wrath of God and all of this because of what Christ has done in place of sinners. So repent. If you're a false convert, repent of your sins. Turn from them and turn to Jesus in faith, believing that he's done this for you. If you'll only trust him, that what he's done is good enough to save you. He will forgive you and save you. And there will be no fear of wrath remaining in you. Why? Because God has put his wrath away in what the Lord Jesus has done. Believe on Christ and be saved. Just as certain as he will punish the unrepentant, he will certainly save all who come to him in faith. And if everyone here is a true convert, and I pray that that's the case, then you just heard the gospel again, and you need to rejoice in it, because that's what Christ has done for you. Rejoice. But now a word to the Christian. You should still fear him. It's the same. You should still fear him. But no longer a fear of wrath or punishment. As John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, I believe, perfect love casts out fear. As Martin Luther said, it's no longer a servile fear. It's no longer a fear of wrath or the fear of a servant. But we ought to have the fear of a son. Listen, when we look upon Christ, we ought to look upon him with the utmost respect, reverence, and awe. We ought to fear him, as Psalm 33 tells us to do that was read to you at the beginning of service. And why should you fear him? Because even though he has saved you, He's still the son of the most high God. He's still God. He's, st he's your savior, yes. And he is your God. And you ought to fear him. You can rejoice in him for sure. I'm not trying to rob you of joy. That would be a sin. right? Far be it from me to try to rob you of joy. There is joy in knowing Jesus. There is joy in the peace that he brings. I'm not denying that. We should rejoice in that he calls himself our friend. But if I may put it this way, he is your friend with a capital F. He's your, he's your friend. He is your king. He is not a friend like other friends. He still has sovereign authority over you. Just like if you were friends with a, the king of an earthly nation, you would still respect him. Why? Because he's your king. You still show him respect. You're not dealing with a commoner here. You're dealing with the almighty king of the universe. Now that the king would condescend to befriend dirty, sinful peasants like us is astounding. What great mercy and grace. But nevertheless, he is still the king. So listen to me. He's not your homeboy. Right? Remember those stupid shirts people used to wear in the early 2000s? Jesus is my homeboy. That's blasphemy. He's not your homeboy. Listen, this applies to us. I hear how some of us talk about him from time to time. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's not your college friend. He is the son of the most high God. He is your God and your Lord and your king. And in mercy, he has said, I'm also your friend. He is your God. Everyone in this passage feared him. And we ought to be no different, even though the kind of fear is different. We may no longer fear his wrath, but we are to recognize who it is we're dealing with when we deal with Jesus. Know who he is, so fear him. And show him the respect that's due to his holy name. And I don't just mean that with an external, rigid formalism. 
I mean this in every area and every aspect of our lives. So this is a very broad application. Submit to him in every way. In your speech, honor him as Lord. In your worship on the Lord's day as you're doing now, as you hear his word, as you sing songs to him, as you take his supper, as you pray, honor him as Lord. In your private worship with your families or when you're alone, honor him as Lord. In the way that you walk in loving obedience to his commandments day in and day out, honor him as Lord. Show him the fear he deserves. His commandments are not suggestions. And I'm not trying to just talk about his law like a legalist, but what I want us to see so much in our culture, Jesus is portrayed as just this hippie guru who just gives good advice that like you might want to listen to or like eh, he kind of doesn't get that upset and you can kind of do your own thing and it's all good. He's the son of the most high God. Right? So I'm not trying to be too harsh. What I'm trying to do is correct what you hear out there so much. He's the son of the most high God and we ought to respect him as our Lord. In everything that you do, regard him as holy. Hold him high in your hearts and set him apart. Sanctify him, as Peter tells us, as Lord. And one last thought on this. I'm almost done. Let us not be outdone. May it never be said that we have been outdone by demons when it comes to showing Jesus the reverence and respect that he deserves. Remember, they fell down at his feet because they recognized who he is. May we never be outdone by them. But lastly... Christian, I want you to rejoice. I'm not trying to be a thief of joy, right? Rejoice that you've come to know and be embraced by and are loved and under the protection of the one who demons fear. The almighty God of the universe, the, the, the one before whom all the earth trembles, has taken you into his family, forgiven you of your sins, made you clean, and now calls you his own. So rejoice and let it be a holy, reverent joy that you have in your king. Let's pray. Our sovereign Lord and master, Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminders that you give us of who you are. Lord, I think so often we, we probably take for granted who you are. Oh yeah, I know Jesus is Lord. God, but that doesn't sink down in our hearts the way that it should. So by your spirit, I pray that you would press in to our hearts deeply, that you are our sovereign king. You're the sovereign king who's loved us and lived for us and died for us and was raised on our behalf, who has shown us mercy and compassion and grace beyond measure, but nevertheless, you are still king. So Lord Jesus, may we honor you as king. Grant to us the ability and desire to show you the respect that you deserve as our great God and master. We pray this in your name. Amen.